Well, good morning. My name is Brian. I'm senior pastor here, and I would like to welcome all of you who are new. We'd like to welcome those of you who are joining us online. I know many of you are looking forward to a happy Father's Day. I want to say happy Mother's Day to those of you mothers who didn't get what you want for Mother's Day. So you're sort of, you know, low-key sort of suggest. I thought, no, this is the restaurant you wanted to go to for Mother's Day, wasn't it? Yeah, actually, the gift that, anyway. So uh, really, really glad you're here. My question I want to start out with is this. Have you ever been tricked into going to see a movie because they put all the good scenes from the movie in the movie trailer? All right? That happened last weekend uh, when Lisa and I went to see Ocean's 8. Hopefully that's not disappointing for those of you who want to see it. Listen, opening weekend, I had 42 million at the opening day box office. So we're thinking it's safe. My friend Adam has a, has a rule of thumb. If it, if it is above 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, go ahead and see it. I hate you, Adam, for giving me that, that advice. It had an amazing cast. It had Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, uh, Anne Hathaway, Rihanna, but she's an actor, Sarah Paulson, on and on and on. To make, it, make sure that this movie was going to be it, it had cameos from Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner, Kendall Jenner, Serena Williams, Common the Rapper, and Katie Holmes, but yet still 15 minutes into the movie, I was doing this. Back and forth and back and forth. Now listen, once I eventually woke up and paid attention, the movie wasn't terrible, it just wasn't a date night movie. It was a renter. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference between date night movie and renter, and this didn't make the cut. Now, I want to compare that to a movie that was released in 2017 that in the entirety of the movie only sold $35 million, which is about $6, 7000000 million less than the opening day, just one weekend, for Ocean's 8. I predict, however, even though it only had one recognizable actor in it, that 20 years from now, people will consider this movie a classic, and that is the movie Hostiles with Christian Bale. Um, It's a movie that's set in New Mexico in 1892. Legendary army captain, played by Christian Bale, renowned for his hatred of Native Americans, mercilessly slaughtering them if they won't uh, move onto reservations. Well, this army captain was forced to take and escort a dying Cheyenne chief named Yellowhawk, who he himself had slaughtered countless settlers, and basically take him from New Mexico and escort him all the way up to Montana, where he was from, so that he could die in peace. It was a political move that they were going to cover in the newspaper, and Christian Bale didn't want to do it. He told his commanding officer, Yellowtail is a butcher. And then his commanding officer looked at him and said, well, then the two of you will get along just fine. And so the storyline pits these two equals that hate each other on this journey from New Mexico to Montana. And along the way, they keep, their party keeps getting picked off by Comanches, a group that both hate, and eventually they have to band together to survive, and that's all I'm going to share because I don't want to reveal any more of the plot line, but I do want to say this. I believe this movie is going to be a classic for the same two reasons all great classic movies become classics. Number one, it identified a deep internal conflict with which we all wrestle, and it's this. It's basic human nature to create self-fulfilling stereotypes about people that we don't know very well. 
It's human nature that when we don't know someone and we can't walk in their shoes, we make up stories about them in our head that simply don't reflect reality. But when we're put together in situations and we get to know these people, it becomes perfectly understandable why they think and they do the things that they do. Here's the second reason I think it's going to become a classic, because the characters experience startling transformation. For those of you who watch the movie, you will notice the transformation that occurs from Christian Bale at the beginning all the way to what is called the climactic scene, which has to be one of the most satisfying and ennobling and fulfilling final scenes of any movie I have ever seen. And it's because we all want to be transformed. And so today we're beginning a three-week series called Summer Classics. And what we're going to do is we're going to use classic movies that we know and love as a way of sort of unearthing and bringing to the surface some basic human needs that only Scripture and God can fulfill. And since today is Father's Day, we're going to look at the role that fathers play in our lives. I want to draw your attention to start by, to look at a quote by a cultural anthropologist named Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead said this. She argued that fathers serve no function beyond what we see in animals. No function beyond simply copulating and providing the DNA necessary for people to exist. Now, talking about this is vitally important for the church and especially for Christian men because we live in a culture where voices in our culture are telling us that gender is something that we choose. Gender is something that you pick. Gender is something that really doesn't matter. That people are just human beings and they're interchangeable and because of who they are and their gender, they don't provide any particular unique perspective on life. I find even the most committed Christians asking, what exactly does a father do? Or more importantly, how can we become better ones? Or if I didn't have a good one, how can I grow past the negative experience and be a good one myself? That's what we're going to address today. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi chapter 4. It's the last book in the Bible, and we're going to look at the last two sentences of the last book of the Bible. Now, for those of you who are new, um, we always take part of our service, and we dedicate it to learning what the Bible says because we believe the Bible is God's instruction manual for, to understand how, who God is and how to make life work. So we always take part of our service to study it and apply it. And you can always, when you're coming in, grab a Bible on your way in on those carts. You can also, if you want, you can download our church app. Go to Google Play or the App Store, type in CCV Mobile, click that app, bring it up. In the top right-hand corner, you'll see Bible. You can follow the passage that we're going to look at today. Just want to let you know, in a couple weeks, I'm going to start sending a daily email. Just, just calling it daily devotions. They're going to be brief. They're going to be short. And what they're doing, what, uh, the intent of these is I want to help people better understand the Bible and start off their day right. It literally will take you one minute to read it. So if you'd like to get those, uh, you can go and text the number 66866, and in the subject line, put discover to that, and it will send you a sign-up link, and then you can sign up. Well, Margaret Mead said, fathers are simply DNA providers. What does God say? 
Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says this. I will send, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Let me pause here and say, what Malachi is prophesying is that God is going to send a prophet like Elijah, which the New Testament people believed was John the Baptist. John the Baptist essentially escorting Jesus to the front row and allowing him to start his ministry. And what's the whole point of Jesus and what he's going to do? It says this, he will turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents. Have you ever, you ever, you ever seen a child whose father's heart wasn't turned to them? You ever seen a father whose heart wasn't turned to their children? We at this church use a translation of the Bible because this is originally written in Hebrew. We use a translation by a group of people uh, that is called the NIV translation, New International Version. It is simply the best contemporary faithful translation of the Bible. Unfortunately, I believe they got the translation wrong here. What they should have done is stuck with the 1983 translation. They translated this verse that God will turn the hearts of parents to their children. But what the original text, it doesn't say that. What it says is it will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now you understand why the NIV wanted to do that. It wanted to be inclusive and let everybody know that both mothers and fathers play a specific role. But that's not Malachi's point. Malachi's point is that fathers when their hearts are not turned to the children and in tune with providing what their children need, bad things happen in our culture when that happens. The 24th book of Homer's Iliad, Achilles is quoted as saying this, we men are wretched things. And our entire history as a species of men is simply a testament of what happens when men recklessly use and abuse and hurt women and children and each other. We men are wretched things. We wreak havoc on the lives of people. But a man of God, that's an amazing thing to behold because a man that fights against his basic human sinfulness and pushes back against cultural stereotypes provides three things for his children that women are not able to provide in the same way and to the same extent, okay? Not that women and mothers do not specifically provide powerfully, unbelievably important things. It's that when you take a man who is appropriately submitted to God and the influence and you pull it out of that person's life and set that person's over here, there is a void that is missing. And what we're going to talk about today is that very void. Here is the first thing that you men can and will provide for your children. And the first thing is sexual identity. Sexual identity. When you as a man are appropriately submitted to God and your heart is turning to your children... You will help your child understand and confirm their sexual identity. Now, let me ask you a question. How old were you when, some, when, you, were, when you were first told the birds and the bees? 
right? Now, for those of you who are under 30, what I'm asking is, when was the first time you heard about sex? How old were you? I think I was like 15 or so. My mother came and knocked on my bedroom door. I opened it up. She said, and then she, she had this booklet, and she stuck it to my chest. She said, here, your dad wanted me to give you this. I had a feeling I would have, your dad wanted me to give you this, and if you got any questions, go talk to him. And literally turned around and walked away. That was it. Now, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this book is going to provide answers to all of my questions. Hopefully it's going to have illustrated pictures, I'm thinking, as a young boy at 15. Um, This is going to be an amazing resource. And when I pulled it away from my chest and looked at it, I kid you not, this was the book I was given. Had a catchy, catchy title, A Valuable Sex Guide for Father and Son. And now notice... Notice, my dad, my dad was not going to give me something that didn't have the, the best information available for, for his son. Notice down on the bottom, uh, it is a completely new 1944-1945 edition. Uh, I think it's funny. Look at, the, look, at the, look at the father and son. They're like, they're so humiliated, they can't even look you in the eye. They're like, son, just keep looking up. Just keep looking up. Now you're probably wondering what riveting nuggets of information was shared in this completely new and revised manual from 1944-45. I thought you would never ask. Here is the table of contents on the back of the book right here. Uh, A whole glorious list of topics that any a uh, boy in the 80s would want to, want to read about such things like little things that destroy marriage, don't do them. <laughs> Human sexual organs, learn about your body. Here's one, conjugal love, it binds man and woman together. And what quite possibly in the history of the human species is the greatest chapter title of any book On the planet, it is self-abuse injures health and character, causes impotency. There you go. That is what you want to read as a 15-year-old boy. That was fantastic. Now listen, uh, my dad probably didn't do a great job with the talk, right? Uh, But my father's main job was to model what it looks like to be a man and just as important what it doesn't look like to be a woman, And at that, he hit a home run. Here's the thing. As human beings, as we develop, we look to our fathers as models of what a man looks like and what a woman doesn't look like, not just physically, but spiritually, ethically. Everything that who we are or who we are not meant to be is to be contained in what psychologists call a triadic relationship. A relationship between one person having mirrored for them and confirmed to them all along two different genders. Two different genders that the book of Genesis said is given by God. A male and a female. In the image of God created us. Male and female, it says in the second chapter or in the first chapter of Genesis. I'm going to show you a picture 
And I want to I ask you a question. Is this a man or a woman? Okay? And here's the picture. Is this, is this a man or a woman? This is a man who has gender dysphoria, who's in a lot of pain, and who is deeply loved by God, just like the rest of us. But he is a man, no matter how many hormone supplements and gender reassignment surgeries and confirming 21st century pop cultural psychologists are going to encourage him to do what he did. Listen, it is not hateful at all to tell your kids that people that are loved by God are never to be bullied, they're never to be discriminated against, never to be made fun of, but they're misguided. Exodus 20.12 says, honor your father and mother. The word honor in Hebrew means heavy, weighty. It means to pay attention to, observe, listen, watch, mimic, model, obey. And one of a father's key tasks is to model what a man looks like and what a woman doesn't look like. Oh my goodness, I was watching, I was looking for a movie. I always go to the free rental section on, on demand. I'm looking for a movie, and I'm just going down the most recent movies, and it's just one movie after another that just simply says gender is something that you choose. You, could, you just choose it. You take a 15-year-old girl who's cutting herself, and we'll try to stop that. But the moment she says, I think I'm a guy... I'm going to give you hormone therapy, and I'll help you get surgery very shortly. My ways are not your ways, says God, for instance, for a reason. When you combine a warm, affectionate relationship with someone who is going to model a loving father role or a loving mother role, something powerful happens. And when you don't have that, something misses. Our fathers provide sexual identity that confirm that. They also provide ethical conviction. Fathers, when they do what God created them to do, create children who have character and who are willing to not compromise. Parents are given the mandate to model for their children ethical convictions. Let me give you an example of this. I remember I was, think I was about four, and it had to be a Saturday morning because we never, had, never would have gone to the mall like during the week, but it was a, a Saturday, so it was a Saturday morning. I was about four, and I remember my right hand was up. I was holding my dad's left hand, and we were walking into the mall, and it was at the cross, crosswalk where all the parking was behind us, and everybody's walking to the mall, which was up there, and there were dozens and dozens and dozens of families with young kids that are walking by. And in the middle of this crosswalk, and I remember it because there were the lines, there was this car that's parked sort of sideways, and I hear screams, children screaming, um, uh, parents screaming, and look over. My dad says, don't look. He, he, he has his pants off. And he was doing something I didn't understand what was going on. He was doing this purposely in front of all of the children that were going into the mall. And all of the sudden, after he said that, I remember being whipped into the air 
as my dad is holding my hand and he kicks this guy's door as he goes and he runs off. And I remember my dad picks me off and he's saying numbers and letters in his head. I don't remember what the word, but he kept repeating them over and over again. And as we're running into the mall, we go to this thing. For those of you who are 25 and younger, they're called pay phones. And um, he sets me down and he calls the police and proceeds to say that there was this um, out there. Ex- er, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18, verse 2 says, The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Which is basically saying there's a direct relationship between the character and the ethical choices of a father and their children. And I'm telling you right now, if you love this church because of the stand that we always take on the Bible, regardless of what the culture says, the stand that we take on justice issues, the stand when we, take, when we stand up for people who cannot stand up for themselves, both here and around the world, I'm telling you right now, it is not coming from me, it's coming from my dad. And I don't remember him ever saying anything. I would like to talk to you about justice and treating people with kindness and standing up for people. Never remember a conversation like that. I just always remember him walking up to a motel and paying for a homeless person to spend the night. And fathers, you have a special role that you play that in the same measure and in a different way, women, mothers, will not be able to provide. Mothers will be able and women will be able to provide something that men will not be able to provide. Both equally provide something in this triadic relationship that when it's missing... It's missing. So it's sexual identity, ethical conviction, and then finally, self-confidence. When fathers do what God created them to do, they can push their children to believe in themselves and to develop self-confidence in who God created them to be and the decisions that they have to make. I know this. I've seen this over 30 years of interviewing people. There are people that have... um, relationships with their fathers that have been mended. Maybe it didn't need to be perfect, but they've been mended. Or there has been someone else that has been a father figure in their life compared to those who have this semi-truck hole in their soul, this gaping wound that should have been filled by this man that was in their life that was either absent, distant, or gone. Distant or gone. There's this old Irish poem that says, When your father dies, you lose your umbrella from bad weather. And I call it a a unique calling by God or testosterone or a larger muscular structure, the combination of all of those. Men have a way of protecting both women and children in a way that women will not provide. I know that sounds like I'm saying something from the 30s, but it's absolutely true. It doesn't diminish any, in any way, shape, or form the strength and the specific roles that women provide, but there is something missing when a man doesn't stand up and be the man of God that God created them to be. When I was in seventh grade, I was a victim of a series of physical assaults by, oh, he was an adult, he was 18. I was in seventh grade, got the crap beat out of me virtually every day in seventh grade. Finally, when my jaw got dislocated and I couldn't chew food, my parents were like, that's it. 
And so we went to court, and then they threw the case out. They did nothing to this person, put him on probation. And on the way home, I'm in the backseat of the car as a seventh grader, tears streaming down my eyes and shaking. Because as a seventh grader, I did what I knew I needed to do. I told my teachers, who did nothing and could do nothing. I told my principal, who was absolutely impotent and powerless to do anything. We went to the police. We filed a case. We went to the judge. Nothing was going to stop these people. So I'm in the car bawling on the way home as a seventh grader, all 110 pounds of me, 120 pounds of me. As we pull into our um, subdivision, my dad is looking at me, crying in the mirror. He looks over, and then he pulls the car over, puts it in park, and he leans over the back seat, and he says, I want to tell you two things, son. Number one, if I ever, ever, ever hear about you picking on or discriminating or hurting or bullying in any way another kid, trust me, you're going to deal with me. Do you understand? Yes. But number two, if you're ever in a situation where someone is hurting you, where someone is picking on you, you try to resolve it peacefully. You be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. You stand up and you resolve it and you do everything that you know to do. But if you're backed in a corner and that person is going to physically hurt you, you're going to make a fist, you're going to go for the nose, you're going to drop them to the ground, and you're not going to quit until they're done. You are done backing off and being afraid of people. You're done with that. Do you understand? I believe in you. You are done. And from that day forward, I gotta be honest, I've never been afraid. Ever. The only time I've ever been afraid since then is when I shrunk Lisa's shirt in the dryer one time. I was like, <laughs> I'm scared. Um, Here's two things you need to know about that. Number one, my dad is one of the most mild-mannered, gentle guys you'd ever meet. It's not like he has an anger problem or whatever, walking around. That's not him at all. But the second thing you need to understand, my mother never would have been able to do that. That is not a knock or to diminish in any way the equal role that mothers play in our lives. It's just this is something only he could do. And that's why you need to hear this, men. We need you to stand up. It is not lost on me that the majority of Christian men are golfing today instead of being here. It is not lost on me that the unchurched people that we are called to reach that are far from God have gaping, semi-truck-wide wounds in their souls. And here's the thing. This is why we need you to stand up. Our mission, to help people far from God become fully devoted followers. And the vision is to accomplish that is we're going to build a church that just unchurched people just love it. Why? Because they can walk in here with all of their brokenness and there are going to be men who are saying, you know what? Hey, you know what? I know, man. Sorry, dude. You got, you got, a, raw, you got a raw deal. But I'd like to, I'd like to be your coach like to be one of the relational leaders in our, chi- in our chi- kids' ministry and our student ministries. I'm going to walk alongside you like I've seen great men do in this congregation from the time they're small and all the way until they're graduated from high school and being with them into college and watching them when they get married. That's the power of a man. 
So when Margaret Mead doesn't understand that a man can confirm your sexual identity, strengthen your ethical convictions, and bolster your self-confidence, and they're like, fathers serve no function beyond what we see in animals. You pick and choose your gender, whatever you want to do. They don't get it. My hunch is Margaret Mead was looking for the same thing Ray was looking for in Field of Dreams. At the beginning of the movie, here's this voice. If you build it, he will come. The whole movie is this search, who's he? Finally realizes, oh, it's Shoeless Joe Jackson. If I build this field, Shoeless Joe is going to come and he's going to play. And eventually, Shoeless Joe comes and plays and then Ray realizes, oh my gosh, I didn't build this field for Shoeless Joe. I built it for someone else. Field of Dreams is a classic movie because it's about a deep internal conflict with which all human beings wrestles, and it's that our hearts yearn to connect deeply with our dads. So at the end of the movie, Shoeless Joe walks off, and it's Ray and someone that he had been wanting to play catch with his whole life. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.